A week ago, uh, my wife and I were in uh, New York City. We were there for a few days just for the fun of it, for vacation. We were celebrating, if you can believe this, our 40th wedding anniversary. Yeah. It's well worth it to hang in there. This is my wonderful wife, Susie, over here, the joy of my life. Four decades go by like nothing, although she has said once in a while that, dear, it seems actually a long, longer than that sometimes. But um, anyway, we had a great time. Our uh, middle son and his wife also live in uh, New York, so we had a chance to visit them. But one of the things that we did while we were there was to go to the uh, World Trade Center. And, um, you know, we were there the last time, maybe eight years before, and there wasn't much there, but as you can see now, the uh, Memorial Plaza is open. They opened it actually uh, 10 years to the day after the uh, attacks there on September 11, 2001. This is one of the massive reflecting pools. There are two of them, and they mark the footprint, footprints where the Twin Towers once stood. That's the Freedom Tower, the new skyscraper that's now gone up and been topped out. The very tip of the spire, get this, it's 1,776 feet high. It's a significant number, 1776. It's also the tallest building in America now. Anyway, as we were there reflecting on it, I was really struck by the uh, memorial. It's got the names of more than 3,000 people that were killed, both at the towers, and then also Flight 93 that went down in Pennsylvania, and the one the plane that went into the Pentagon. And also, there were six people killed back in 1993 when there was an earlier um, attack on the World Trade Center. It's all memorialized there, and you can see the names all around. Very moving thing to visit. But among the other impressions I had, I was struck by the similarity, a certain similarity, between this memorial and the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Some of you, I'm sure, have been there as well. The similarity is that they both memorialize events that involve significant personal sacrifices on many people's parts, and also a great sense of national loss. And what's interesting, the similarity, is that both of them, rather than being marked by grand monuments, are marked by the scars in the ground. The scars in the ground. And so what you see is actually, at the World Trade Center, you see where the towers were in these pools. And at the Vietnam War Memorial, if you've been there, you know, it's not a grand monument above ground, but it's really they dug into the ground and back out so that as you walk into the memorial, you go down and you see the names across the granite face. And uh, being of the generation that was directly involved in that conflict, I found it a remarkably emotional experience to go there because I could find the names of guys that I had gone to junior high with and high school who lost their lives in that conflict. Well, all of that got me to thinking about a passage in the Gospel of John. And uh, this, you know, this last year I've been uh, teaching a class. We worked our way through the Gospel of John, through the whole thing, uh, pretty much um, in several months' time. And towards the very end of the Gospel, there's this inter interesting incident it's after the resurrection of Christ. He has appeared to his disciples, but at his first appearance to his group of disciples, one of them, Thomas, who we know as the doubter, uh, was not there. Uh, for whatever reason, he missed the meeting. 
And so in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, we read about what happened. It says this, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. That's what God's word. And I find it so interesting that after the resurrection, in the resurrection body that by all of the evidence we have in scripture had powers that go beyond a normal human body, Jesus just kind of appears in the room though the door was locked and he seems to come and go in a mysterious way. And yet there's clearly a physicality about it because as in the resurrection appearances recorded in the gospel, he eats fish with the disciples and so forth. Isn't it interesting that even after the resurrection, the scars, the wounds are still visible? We find a similar pattern in the book of Revelation where John sees this great vision of of the one who is alone worthy to open the scroll, the book of life, and that one he sees seated on the throne is described as the lamb who was slain. In other words, the lamb also bears the marks, the wounds of Christ. So I was uh, reminded again of this passage that we heard earlier from Isaiah 53 that says in one of the verses, he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and upon him the punishment that made, was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises or his stripes, some of the older versions say the signs of the lashings that he received, by his wounds we are healed. So I want to pose the question this evening, how are we healed by the wounds of Christ. We can start with this. At the very core of the human condition is the problem of sin. As the scripture says, like sheep, we go astray. We go our own way, which is to say that we reject God. We reject God who made us and is full, fully worthy of endless honor. But we prefer the so-called freedom of our own will. So we go our own way. Now that's a basic thing to understand about sin, but here's another. Sin is a two-sided coin, a two-sided coin. On the one side of the coin is guilt for wrongdoing. And we certainly do wrong if we're even partially honest with ourselves. And we bear guilt before God because of the wrongdoing. But the other side of the coin are the wounds that we suffer because of the wrongs 
that are done. So sin, the problem of sin, is not simply that we are guilty before God, it is that we are also wounded people. We are damaged. Now some of the damage we, we inflict upon ourselves. You know, we do things that are wrongful, that are foolish, that are just plain contrary to God's will, and sometimes we inflict damage upon ourselves, but other times the damage that we suffer on account of sin is not because of things we've done ourselves, but it is because of the wrongful things that other people have done. We live in a sinful, fallen world. We are social creatures, and because of that, sometimes we get the side effects, if you will, of the wrongful choices that other people make. But whether it's from our self-inflicted wounds or whether it's from the actions of others, the problem of sin is not simply that we're guilty and that needs to be taken away. It's that we're broken and we need to be healed. We need to be healed. You know, the cross is central to the Christian faith, and rightly so, because it stands for the fact that Christ takes away the guilt of our sin. He bears the rejection of God in himself, and despite our rejection of God through Christ, we are forgiven of that guilt. On the cross, the truth, the real character of humanity's offense against God is made clear. Because Jesus, who is the very love of God sent among us in, personal, in person, in fact, is not received, not welcomed, by more than just a few, but is brutally rejected, scorned, reviled, publicly humiliated, killed. What a way to treat anyone, let alone the God who gave us our very lives. But that is what is revealed to us on the cross, the nature of the impact of our rejection of God on God himself. But the miracle of the cross reveals something else as well, and that is that God in Christ took the very worst that humanity had to dish out. And hear this, we did not permanently exterminate him. We did not eliminate God. But God in Christ the Son of God, died and was buried, and God the Father, the source of all life, raised him to life. Now, God is without beginning and without end, and so the fact that the God-man Jesus would pass through death and the grave and return to life should, in a sense, not surprise us. We would not expect God to be capable of being eliminated, exterminated by human beings. What is more astounding in many ways than the fact that Christ was raised from the dead is that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having been treated so wrongly and unjustly at human hands, that God should love us anyway. 
On the cross, God is saying, in effect, give me your worst. I'll take it. You can even kill my human body and you can throw me away, but my life and my love for you will go on and on until I have brought you back into the relationship with me that you were made for. So, our sin, our guilt, is taken away. Now, on the other side of this coin, the one that concerns the results or consequences or wounds of the sins that we commit and that are committed against us, the wounds as we suffer them, there is the issue of how the wounds of Christ bring healing to us. Now, the wounds that come from sin and from being in a sinful world are many kinds. Some of them are material. There are physical wounds sometimes that happen through wrongdoing. There are financial wounds. Some of them are emotional. They are psychic scars to the mind and emotions that it can be very difficult uh, to overcome. Some of them are spiritual, meaning that there are wounds that go to the very heart and spirit of a person. I have a brother-in-law named Jeremy. Susie's uh, one of Susie's brothers. And quite a number of years ago now, he was driving through downtown Seattle in his Volkswagen bug, and someone, another driver, wrongfully, we could even say sinfully, ran a red light. And he clipped his car, spun it around. He was thrown out, literally crushed, and spent the next three months in the critical care unit fighting for his life. It's a miracle that he survived. And even today, he bears the scars of that experience. You know, he lost major organs and has a false chest wall on one side and all of that because somebody did something wrong and he suffered the physical wounds. But sometimes the wounds are not physical, as we well know. I think most of you are familiar with the movie Forrest Gump and that story. And you know that in that movie, Forrest's childhood friend is a little girl named Jenny. And when they're both about five or six years old, in one scene, they run away into a cornfield to try to escape from Jenny's drunken father. And they kneel down, fearful for their lives in the corn, and little Jenny prays, Dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away from here. And of course, the backstory is that her father has been sexually abusing her, and though, even though he is arrested and taken away in the story, that experience haunts her for almost her entire life. Later on in the story, Jenny returns to the town where she grew up in order to visit Forrest. They're in, there about, in about their 30s now as adults, and, and as they are walking along together, they come upon the abandoned shack where she once lived with her father. And when she sees it, she bursts into tears. And then, you, and then you may remember that in her anger and in her rage, she looks around and she finds a rock on the ground and she throws it as hard as she can at the shack. And then she finds another and she throws it and another and she throws it. And after a minute or two, she runs out of rocks. She can't find any more. So in her rage and her frustration, she takes off her shoes and she throws her shoes at the shack. And then she drops to the ground, sobbing. And as Forrest Gump reflects on this, his comment is, 
Sometimes, I guess, there just aren't enough rocks. There just aren't enough rocks. It's a very heart-wrenching scene. And it's a vivid portrayal also of a, a very sad fact. And that is that some of us, because we were wounded in one way or another by someone else's sin, some of us spend our lives throwing rocks at people who didn't hurt us and who don't deserve it. But we have this response that rises up in us against something that happened to us that wasn't right. And we go through a lot of life sometimes taking it out on other people. Our scars may not be material or visible, but they are real and they exert great power in our lives unless they can be healed. And it's this kind of thing that I want to address primarily this evening. How do the wounds of Christ help bring us healing from the wounds of sin as we experience them in our own lives? You know, it's a big subject, and we can't touch on every possibility tonight, but I want to give you at least these things that I think start us in the right direction in understanding how the wounds of Christ heal the wounds of sin in our own lives. The first, I would say, is the word sympathy. Sympathy. You know, in scriptures in the book of Hebrews, it says, we do not have a high priest, it's referring to Jesus Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a wonderful thing to realize is that Christ is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But Christ sympathizes not only with our weakness, he sympathizes with our woundedness. With our woundedness. You know, I think as human beings, we all harbor deep fears. Some of us may be very conscious of them, and many of us are kind of, we push them down and we sort of don't think about them most of the time. Some of us are deathly afraid of physical pain. I've known people that, uh, you know, not only don't like to go to the dentist, but they literally avoid it for years and years at the cost of their own health. Some of us are very afraid of rejection and abandonment. Uh, we may in fact have felt rejected or abandoned as a child or as a young person or maybe by someone we thought was a, a friend or a lover who cared for us. Some of us are deathly afraid of public shame and humiliation. This is actually a very common fear among pastors for reasons you might guess, you know. I had a professor in seminary who was in a preaching class. He once said, preaching is the act of on a weekly basis committing public hypocrisy. There's something to that because we never live up to our own sermons and we live with this fear that there will be some sort of shameful um, exposure. Some of us are afraid of powerlessness. We may have been put in a position at some point in our life where, where someone exercised power over us that was threatening and dangerous and harmful and we're just terribly afraid of being involved in any kind of a relationship where somebody might gain that kind of power over us again. And so it keeps us distant from people. We 
are afraid oftentimes of meaninglessness. Maybe we're haunted by the idea that at the end of the day, life doesn't really add up to much. We wonder, is there really meaning? We are afraid sometimes of despair. We find ourselves running from it, kind of haunted by this sense that, that if we stop for a moment, we might plunge into dark despair. We are afraid of death, almost universally. And some of us are afraid of eternal condemnation. The wounds of Christ tell us something very important about God. Simply put, He gets us. No matter what we have suffered, no matter how deeply personal or painful our wounds may be, if there is anyone in the universe who is truly able to comprehend the fear and the pain that we feel, it is the Lord. He gets it. You know, sometimes if we're sick or we're struggling with a physical ailment, we, we search, you know, for the right doctor, the right counselor, and we should. When we go looking for the healing of our deepest hurts, our deepest wounds, which scar the very depths of our souls, Jesus is the one that we can turn to with trust and confidence. He gets it. He has sympathy for us. Second word I would offer to you is solidarity. Solidarity. God does not stand back observing us from a distance, as though he might be sympathetic but prefers to remain uninvolved, to not get his hands dirty. Instead, God in Christ entered our world. He entered the very world as we know it, a harsh and sometimes brutal, unfair world. He entered it, became a part of it. Jesus is a real person who lived in a specific time and a specific place. He's actually part of human history. And when we open our heart to Christ, and we do need to open it because he never invades us uninvited. When we open our heart to Christ, we receive him through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, that one whose very mission is to be called alongside of us, and the Spirit knows us better than we know ourselves. The Spirit is the one who understands us so deeply, in fact, that when we do not have the ability even to pray, we don't just don't know what to say about a situation. The Spirit prays for us with sighs and groans that are too deep for words. So deeply does the Holy Spirit understand what's in our hearts and our souls. Now, the Holy Spirit may convict us at times, you know, that twinge of conscience that we get that reminds us of the reality of our wrongdoing, but conviction is not judgment and condemnation. We are the ones who often judge and condemn ourselves. And in fact, we can be bitter, harsh, and relentless in our self-judgments and our self-condemnations. Not so God. The ministry of, the Christ, of Christ the Son was to save us, not to condemn us. The ministry of the Spirit is to guide us into the way of life, not to condemn us. And God the Father has made us 
his very own children. And Jesus says that God the Father loves us the same way that God loves him, his only begotten son, of whom the Father said, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. You are his son, you are his daughter. With you, God is well pleased. The one who dwells in us then does not judge us as we judge ourselves. He is our advocate, oftentimes defending us against even our own self-condemnation. There's a lot of negative self-talk that goes through most of our heads. The Holy Spirit in us is not the source of that negative self-talk. The Spirit is the one who is trying to remind us of how deeply loved and cherished we are and what God has done in order to make us his own. Solidarity. The wounds of Christ show us not only that he understands us, but that he is with us indeed. In his wounds, we see that Christ is one of us. The last word is a phrase. Christ shows us the way. He shows us the way to the healing that we need from our wounds. You know, we often live in denial, don't we? We uh, choose to ignore or avoid those things that seem too shameful to admit or too painful to acknowledge. We may convince ourselves that they don't really matter much, that it's better just to ignore them and move on, and I suppose that there are some things in life that can be discarded that way. But there are other things that stick to us, that eat away at us. They come back to us in recurrent dreams or nightmares. They rear their heads in our compulsive actions and our addictive behaviors. Much as we try to leave them behind, to be free of them, they follow us wherever we go until we come to believe that there is no way to be rid of them. I suppose that there are wounds that are permanent, in a sense, scars that don't fade. In my experience, when I meet people that have lost a loved one, a child, a spouse, a brother or sister, a dear friend, those kinds of losses stay with us. We, we don't just get over them. They remain scars that mark our lives, and we eventually have to work through the grief that comes with it to a place of acceptance. But like the scars of Christ were permanent beyond the grave, so those remain, in a sense, a part of our identity forever. But Jesus Christ shows us the way to deal even with those kinds of lasting wounds. The cross, first of all, says that denial, denial of the reality of the problem is not a solution. You see, isn't it interesting that when you think about the guilt of our sin and the need to be forgiven for that guilt, couldn't God simply have swept it away? 
said it doesn't matter that much, let's move on. Just, you know, I'll forgive you and let's get on with things. Why, why the death on the cross? I'm convinced that because God, it is because God knows that until we confront the reality of the problem, we can't really be healed. And in the cross, the reality of what we, as humanity corporately, have done to God is stated very clearly for us. The cross says that denial is not a solution. We eventually have to face the problem head on somehow. Painful as it may be, the reality of what has wounded us has to be confronted, it has to be felt, so that ultimately it can be accepted. And this indeed involves a kind of dying. We understandably fear the pain of it, but when we let Jesus take us by his strong and gentle hand and lead us toward the cross that we need to bear, we find that even the worst of life cannot destroy us. We find that in turning over our anger and our hurt, the rocks that we throw because of what we feel has been done to us, by turning it over to him, there comes a peace and a freedom that passes understanding. When we go to the cross with Jesus, we find that in fact there is life on the other side of the cross. That there is a resurrection that awaits us in our own lives. Now I know enough about human nature and I know enough about myself to believe that for some of you this particular subject may be pointedly relevant right now. For others of you, it may not really match your experience of life at this particular point, and that's okay. What I can say is that for every single one of us, a time will almost certainly come when it will matter to know how the wounds of Christ affect our healing. Because we do not live in this world untouched, by sin or by harm. We do not get out unscathed. But God has planted a great tower for us, the cross, a perpetual sign that the things that we fear most deeply and the pain that we would choose to avoid and those wounds that make us feel dead within and rob us of the true joy of living, all of these have been met by God in Christ, have been carried by Christ on our behalf, and by His grace, with His Holy Spirit within us, and with confidence in God's never-ending love, we too, like Jesus, can bear the crosses that are set for us. He calls us with him, with the power of his spirit, to go through the pain, 
like him to despise the shame that we fear, to overcome the fear, and even to come to the place where we accept what has happened and we forgive what God, what has been done. And that is a God-like thing to do.